Hello, and welcome to another episode of our Investor Spotlight series, where we dig into the ideas, frameworks, and strategies of the world's best investors. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I'm joined by Howie Schwab, who manages more than $5 billion in emerging market growth for Driehaus, which is based in Chicago, and it's where Howie has worked for the last 20 years. At Driehaus, Howie is the lead portfolio manager for the emerging markets growth strategy, and he's a portfolio manager for the emerging markets small cap equity and emerging markets opportunities strategies. I've learned an enormous amount from Howie, both as an investor and a macro thinker since I first met him, and I am beyond thrilled to have him on the show. In our conversation, we go deep on what it's like to invest in emerging markets and countries around the world, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. The biggest lessons that Howie has learned over the last 20 years, including some incredible stories from investing in China and Russia. We talk through Driehaus's unique culture and why they're so focused on the behavioral and macro aspects of investing. And we spend a lot of time talking through Howie's research that he's pulled together over the last five years that lays out why we're in the middle of a massive pendulum shift away from capital and toward labor, and how demographics and politics are a part of this story, and what it all means in terms of new investment opportunities over the next 10 plus years. If you're an investor or investment manager and are interested in global investing, this interview is filled with incredible ideas and lessons learned. You can find the notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 104. You can learn more about Driehaus online at driehaus.com. That's D-R-I-E-H-A-U-S.com. And you can also follow Driehaus on Twitter at Driehaus Capital. With that, here's my conversation with Howie Schwab of Driehaus Capital Management. Howie, this interview has been a long time coming. We've talked about it for quite a while. So thank you so much for making time and for coming on. I'm thrilled to have you on. Yeah, no, thank you. We've been uh, yeah, thinking about doing this for some time and uh, I'm uh, looking, forward, looking forward to the time together. And I think everyone will realize why it took us so long to schedule this once we get into the meat of this interview and talk about all the research you've been pulling together for a long time. I want to jump right in because there's a ton to cover. Can you start by just giving everyone a quick sketch of your background? Sure. Uh, so I am currently uh, overseeing emerging markets and the emerging markets team for Driehouse Capital Management in Chicago. Amazingly, joined the firm over 20 years ago uh, to work initially with Richard Driehaus, who was a pioneer of, of growth and earnings acceleration-oriented investing. Uh, and at the time of, of joining the firm, uh, Richard had, had just been anointed one of Barron's top 20 uh, investors for the preceding century. So uh, it was a unique opportunity. Uh, I was excited. To, to join the firm. Uh, part of my role with Richard was helping him pivot more aggressively into international and kind of ex-US markets, which was an area of interest to me. And ultimately, in those first few years, we created what is today the international small cap growth strategy for Driehaus. But in 2007, pro- my predecessor on the emerging markets strategy uh, announced that he would be departing the firm. And so we had roughly a six to 12 month transition where you know, I was selected to oversee the emerging markets group and, and the associated strategies, which put me in line to navigate uh, you know, emerging markets and global markets for the first time in that uh, area uh, during 2008, which was fascinating, uh, excruciating and entertaining all at once. And 
ever since have been primarily focused on emerging markets. But you know, we may talk about this further. You know, myself and uh, my co-portfolio manager, uh, we've also been responsible for spearheading global macro uh, research and investing at, at Driehaus, integrating that and incorporating uh, elements of macro investing further into a bottom-up slash growth-oriented approach. And again, if, if you wish to talk about that, we, we can do so. I'd love to to talk about what you alluded to at the beginning, which was you know joining the firm right when uh, you know Richard was getting ready to pivot to focus more on global equities and emerging markets because you know arguably the last twenty years have been a lot has happened <laughs> in emerging markets and in the globe, um, but it's also you know I think arguably you that was an incredibly astute call at the time. Share a little bit about why he was thinking about doing that and and some of the rationale or what he was seeing that made him think that was the right thing to do. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's a, a critical lesson that Richard even instilled within me that he really he was he's ultra competitive, which for better or worse is a personality trait that I share. And he was very much against becoming complacent. So because I joined the firm in 2001, you know, Driehaus as a, as a smaller cap kind of oriented growth shop had, had a phenomenal run in the late 90s. Um, and I think Richard at that point was a looking to diversify a bit, given given the amount of wealth he had accumulated both personally and you know, at the firm level, uh, and also you know, he was observing some of the emerging trends that we could see globally, in particular you know, China's entry into the WTO and some of the associated you know, growth and demographic uh, tailwinds that were likely to drive the you know international parts of the market, and and I remember. Specifically, Richard sort of characterizing the materializing setup in, in emerging markets specifically as, as somewhat akin to what he had witnessed in the 1970s, which is really when he sort of came to prominence managing the US kind of micro and small caps. I think the growth opportunities, the dispersion of opportunities, uh, not to mention the fact that many of these growth business models in, in, in his mind, and I think correctly so, were essentially replicated in emerging markets from models that, that we were already familiar with from the US. I mean, in many ways, as we now know, whether commodity consumption or consumerism, uh, you know, the emerging markets were, were following a pretty well telegraphed trajectory. And, and I think Richard felt like we could latch on to that um, cleanly. I want to talk for a second about uh, what it means to invest in emerging markets, because I think one, for anyone who maybe focuses more on U.S. equities, there's a lot of things that are unique about emerging markets. And so I, I want to try to string together a few questions and, and see if you can talk a little bit about what attracted you initially to investing globally and investing in emerging markets. And then if you could just share what is different about investing in emerging markets and what the experience is like. And we'll get into in a second, you know, you have amazing stories um, of <laughs> obviously some you know key moments in time, but just at a high level to talk about that. Sure. So more nuances than perhaps I anticipated. And so there's been a lot of learning lessons along the way. I think, you know, I think two, two main factors stand out. One, the way that these international and emerging markets value capital markets in terms of, you know, litmus tests of the economy's health or you know, here in the U.S., where we have presidential elections, where the presidents are lauding, you know, the stock market's performance as some measurement of success, that that really isn't always the case in emerging markets. I think you know there you encounter much more 
populism, much more fiscalism, obviously corruption is much higher. And so in, in some ways, you're, the, the risks of impairment and drawdowns are, are greater. And that's sort of an element of, of how we manage money is, is being more uh, attuned to those risks and understanding the need to, to sidestep those altogether. I think, relatedly, macro investing, I mean, as I mentioned, we felt like macro investing was, was paramount in, in trying to navigate emerging markets, but also you know, we can see these trends globally, which is why um, you know, we really enhanced our macro capabilities, including you know, adding one of the portfolio managers over a decade ago. But understanding how macro policy impacts bottom-up fundamentals, risk premia, uh, you know, is really important. And you know, I think if you look at arguably what has been the largest driver of asset returns in the U.S. over the past decade, you know, this kind of exorbitant privilege that people talk about with the U.S. dollar and what that uh, enables the Federal Reserve and, and our policymakers to do in terms of buffering and, and um, stabilizing asset prices, you know, the emerging markets generally are not equipped with uh, similar capabilities. So you know, countries like Turkey or like Brazil would like to cut interest rates aggressively and drive up asset prices, but, but the reality is that the release valves in emerging markets are far, there's far more pressure built up beneath those, at least for the time being. So, you know, what we see is Turkish equities rally, but the currency, you know, depreciates by 30 or 40% over the same time, or, you know, sovereign debt inter- you know, rates uh, explode higher, whereas a, a country like the US has been able thus far to sort of, you know, circumvent that. So I think those are, are crucial. I think similarly, understanding who's sort of on sides with you know, various government entities. You know, it's not universal, but in a majority of those markets, it's important to understand which companies are sort of on sides with the prevailing government as opposed to the opposition government. And that, you know, additionally is, is complex as well. So I think those, you know, those elements really do, do stand out. You know, I think the growth yeah, there's a growth dynamic, which, which does differentiate emerging markets. I think you have to keep in mind that, again, somewhat differentiated from the United States, when countries grow, there, there does come sort of a precipice where too much growth or too much success can place you onto the government's radar. And, and you know, oftentimes, it's more innocent in terms of, hey, taxation will go up or you, know, you need to, to do a bit more to contribute to the social well-being of the country. In other instances, like we saw last year with the Chinese tutoring companies, you know, it can be something altogether more uh, detrimental. I'll try to maybe distill down <laughs> some of what I heard there uh, in terms of how that might influence your process and approach. And I'd love for you to kind of push back on that and, and, and add to it. So it sounds like, you know, if I'm getting it right, you're still doing, obviously, um, you know, bottom up fundamental analysis on a bunch of companies, but that is then heavily clouded by a bunch of top down things that you have to try to suss out and understand. And that's everything from the political environment to the, yeah, I guess just the macro environment to, uh, you know, I guess specific rules, specific concerns uh, at that country level. And so you're still doing a lot of fundamental analysis, but it sounds like you're probably spending just as much, if not more time trying to read the tea leaves and understand the top-down picture. Am I kind of getting that right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a fair summation of, of what I was trying to say. Uh, yeah, I think clearly we are researching companies and, and uh, conducting a fair amount of fundamental bottom-up research. But when we talk with clients, you know, we're pretty transparent about uh, that there are three three pillars to how we approach emerging markets. And 
you know, overlaying a healthy dose of macro research as well as behavioral sort of finance um, is is critical. I think more so even in emerging markets where volatility has generally trended two to five times higher than that of what we see in the U.S. Yeah, it's fascinating. So you, you touched on two things there that I want to talk about because they relate specifically to Driehaus and some of the cultural aspects that are you know somewhat unique. And you know, you and I have talked about this at length, and and I think both of these are fascinating because I wouldn't have intuitively known them from the outside looking in, but obviously talking with you and and talking about how they kind of manifest itself at the company um, is has been fascinating. And those are you know a behavioral focus, but specifically. That, you know, this idea that markets are living organisms and that that should drive a lot of your process and approach. And then separately and maybe complementary to that is a focus on on macro. And that's something that, you know, I find it difficult to approach the markets from a macro perspective. I think some of that's just wiring. But talk a little bit about how the behavioral uh, you know piece shows up at Driehaus and how you guys approach macro. Yeah, sure. So, so I, I think you touched upon this, but with behavioral sort of a behavioral approach, yeah, there is a belief that markets are living organisms as as you could alluded to. And you know the the way I always describe it simplistically is that headlines and sound bites and research reports, you know for lack of a better word, can can be sort of cheap, where you're not not necessarily having to deposit your own funds, which is far different from the market where in order to make an impact, you actually have to open the wallet and invest capital. I mean, that's the only way to move stock prices up or down. So I think, you know, while if you have a very you know, long-term time horizon, it's, it's highly likely that fundamentals and stock prices should correlate. I mean, I'm talking 12 to 20 years plus. You know, the reality, and we've seen this over the past decade, I think sort of almost magnified, is that you know, stock prices and fundamentals can deviate for, for certain reasons. I think even going back to 2008 and 2009, we've talked about this before. Had you simply been wise enough to understand what it was the Fed was, in fact, aiming to do, which essentially, by their own work, you know, their own admission, was to push people down the risk curve. They made it clear to all of us, although we couldn't all see it at the time, that they wanted to basically push people into riskier assets, into longer duration assets. And you know, theoretically, if you had simply interpreted that and allocated all of your capital in that direction and gone on vacation for the next 12 years and come back, um, whether you were, you know, straight long or, you know, had, had gone long those assets and essentially short the, the antithesis of that, um, you would have come back to, a, to an amazing gain without having basically lifted a finger in 10 years. So I think there's that. There's also, yeah, I hearken back to like the quotes from somebody like you know, Stan Drunkenmiller, who is the investor I respect most uh, in the world, just given his track record and his very um, you know logical, straightforward approach. But I think he he has always talked about that it's really liquidity that drives markets, and guys like Ray Dalio have touched upon similar similar uh, characteristics. So I think we look at it that way. I think also um, going back to sort of observing the market, you know, and, and I did you have a good relationship with someone who worked very closely with Stan and I may have shared this with you, but in my early years, you know, to be honest, I was a bit um, apprehensive about kind of disclosing that we used things like technical analysis and behavioral finance because there was this perception that you needed to have CFAs and MBAs and that you know, things of this nature were more voodoo. And then I was having dinner uh, with this particular individual and I was talking to him a bit about sort of 
technical analysis. And he piped up and said, well, of course, that's all Stan does you know, all day, every day is just what I was describing, looking for divergences or looking for you know, areas of prioritization where the market is either you know, really rewarding a company or an industry that's delivering and or you know, in terms of divergences. And, and this was sort of the case with, with Russian oil stocks late last year. We kind of asked ourselves, why is the oil price rising? Why are global oil equities rising? And yet, you know, Russian equities and Russian oil companies really weren't responding. And the reality is that there's always smarter people in the market than you. And I'm sure smarter people had, had made a bet or had um, deciphered whatever was happening in, in the Russia-Ukraine situation. And so a flag like that can really help from, from a divergence perspective. But you know, we talk a lot about um, optimization as well. And so if we have two different companies where we've identified the bottom-up catalysts and triggers and each, you know, and, and then related industries or similar business models, and each of those companies is, let's say, achieving the catalyst that we've outlined successfully, we would anticipate a certain performance profile. And if one of those companies is fulfilling those criteria and one of the you know, companies is not fulfilling those criteria we'll optimize and simply shift into the company where not only do we think we understand the business case, but also we understand, you know, why the stock price is moving and not, not to keep belaboring this, but it's not something that we were, that I was involved with directly, but had we been involved in a situation like Enron, where I think it was like 64 of 65 analysts had a buy rating and you know, all of Wall Street was, was hoodwinked, it would have been something similar where we would have outlined catalysts and even had we been bullish on the stock, with these kind of persistent, like, hey, they're meeting, they're meeting all their fundamental bogeys, and yet the stock just isn't reacting well, and something's not right. I think at that point, the idea you optimize and move into a company where maybe you have similar or higher convictions, but also you know the stock price is reacting. So those are all examples of thinking. I think there's really well-known biases, and guys like Michael, Michael Mobison have talked about this, but specifically, we focus on anchoring and also recency biases. And we talk a lot about in our philosophy is, is identifying second derivative change and earnings inflection points. And so oftentimes, yeah, it's people who are anchored to sort of past views or trying to incorporate prior data and extrapolate that forward. That works sometimes, but oftentimes, as we know, those trends break. And I think in the last 12 months, we may be amidst a pretty serious regime shift. And a lot of investors and hedge funds, as you and I have talked about, uh, have struggled mightily with that. Because the old, you know, the old rules aren't really applying right now. And yeah, the reality is that as much as people may want to exist in a uh, confined laboratory, the market just is not a confined laboratory. And um, I think it's important to, to appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you touched on multiple things there that I think are unique about investing and what make it so challenging and, you know, so fulfilling, especially for competitive people. But, you know, this, I love the example you shared of, you know, doing bottoms up analysis on similar companies and then using technical analysis, I guess, to validate that what you thought was happening is happening. And if it's not, and if there's divergence among a couple of different companies, you know, going with the one that's moving in the pattern that, that you understand, that makes sense to you, that you under, that you underwrote. You also talk, talked about, um, you know, just this idea of being 
hoodwinked. And I think, you know, it reminds me of some of the comments you made earlier in the interview, just around the challenges of emerging market investing, where you're investing in markets, in systems, in countries that are relatively younger and relatively underdeveloped. And part of that is, you know, I think you could, I don't know, maybe call it fake it till you make it. You could, some of it's outright fraud, obviously, but there's this sense of, you know, companies are, emerging companies in particular are trying to tell a very compelling story and having to really push back on that and make sure that that's real. Can you give an example, you know, from your experience? And I know you've had many, you know, in China, Turkey, Russia, uh, you know, can you give us a specific example of feeling like you were being hoodwinked and what you ended up doing in that scenario, (laughs) whether you invested or didn't invest or got out? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, There definitely, yeah, there definitely have been, been cases of this. The way we've approached this is that I mean, if you are being hoodwinked, it's very difficult to, to ascertain that um, through like a, even a company site visit. So we talk a lot about patterns, which is looking at, you know, whether it's sectors or areas or countries, patterns of companies that simply are more prone to this. And I think you know, a couple examples spring to mind where we either avoided the area or avoided the sector. There's a period of several years where Chinese companies that were listing in Singapore, I think they're referring to them as red chips at the time. There's an extremely high hit rate of, of frauds uh, that were occurring in, in those listed companies. And so while a handful did come to market in Singapore that seemed interesting to us fundamentally, you know, our hurdle rate there for risk tolerance was much, much higher. And you know, had the stock been listed elsewhere, we may have decided to invest. But given you know, the pattern and, and again, that risk of impairment, we decided you know, we opted out essentially of, of investing. And that's it's also a term we use, and it's I think it's true everywhere, but data shows it's particularly true in emerging markets, which is it, that the persistence of risk is, is generally higher than the persistence of return. And I think oftentimes, and, and you know, I'm hope, hopeful that US investors aren't receiving a rude awakening to this, but people forget that investing is, is you're, you're acquiring risk when you invest, you're not acquiring certainty, which is I think what people have come down to. But back to examples, I think a couple other areas... The you know the Sino Forest was was a really well uh, documented fraud in China and and I think again we were not involved but whenever we looked at any sort of agriculture or resource company in China that you know where a large part of their value or growth was coming from you know tangible assets like forestry acreage or you know agricultural produce animals things of that nature. You know, we're, we've also really been quick to discount. So yeah, I think I think that there's those areas. There's also, to be frank, discussions you're having with, for example, when we used to meet with Russian companies, where it was almost we're having discussions where essentially it was almost like open kimono that they were hoodwinking you, and it was just sort of a matter of, of doing business. Because, and I think that's what's always a bit shocking initially is that in a lot of these countries, like corruption is tolerated to a certain extent. And I remember. Uh, there's a CEO of a large, large U.S. multinational that you would recognize where they conducted business in Mexico. And I remember him describing to me a certain financial kind of department they had, which or classification they had, which was basically for paying bribes because that's just part of doing business in Mexico. So there's definitely been those situations in, in the past. And um, a lot of that, you know, as much as people may want to believe that you can be an expert, you know, you've had some really good investors who have been duped on frauds in the past. So our view is, is a sort of a combination, again, of, of those patterns. Obviously, we are meeting with these companies and you're trying to use intuition 
But lastly, I think also going back to behavioral finance and looking for divergences in, in, in several cases, you know, reacting quickly when stock prices start to veer away from fundamentals has, has helped us. And we recognize you know, in emerging markets, the need to be uh, much more nimble. So yeah, so that's just a few of, of the examples. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm I'm going to steal. I love that that quote. You know, the persistence of risk is higher than the persistence of return. <laughs> I think it's a very very graceful way to say that. Yeah, and to be fair, I may have borrowed that from a paper somewhere else. So just just that's okay. That's okay. You're just passing yeah. it on. Just passing. <laughs> so I want to now shift and get into the meat of what I think we're going to you know talk about today, which is you've been putting together this you know I don't even know twenty plus page. PDF that we've talked about and gone over quite a few times, you know, that you've just called pendulum shift. And it's basically a culmination of an enormous amount of research charts, data points that, you know, you've been putting together into a narrative around where we've been and and where we're going. And I think it's fascinating. And there's a, a bunch of conclusions and ideas there I want to talk about. I just want to start first with just the simple question, you know, how long have you been doing this research and what was the impetus to put this together in the first place? Yeah, so I think, I mean, it's been almost four years. In reality, the impetus started over a decade ago when, when we created this kind of macro portfolio management role. You know, we had a view, and I think emerging markets were much earlier in the process, yeah, that macro was going to play an increasingly uh, significant role in markets. And I think looking at some of these key aspects, like particularly the financialization of our economy, which we will talk about quite a bit, I'm sure. It just sort of led me to that. And so I think after we had created the macro role for the next several years, I was aware of it, cognizant. The reasons for creating the role in the first place were materializing kind of in spades and I would say surpassing our expectations of how quickly the you know, macro was coming to the fore. And, and as I continued to read these different anecdotes and, and studies that substantiated what we were thinking, I just began to just sort of cut and paste them. And, and you've seen some of the... The preliminary versions of this paper, which were very sort of scattered, there was it was very loosely uh, structured. But you know, as I pasted more and more of these, and even now to this day, when I go back and review some of the data, it's 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 sort of breathtaking what you see evolving. So that was kind of the impetus. It just sort of morphed from what we were seeing on the macro side to then seeing you know, both evidence financially and also kind of qualitatively and quantitatively that sort of confirmed what what we were thinking and i and i really wanted to get you know those views down but but also begin to try and identify you know what i thought were several of the key drivers or takeaways affiliated with with that so i want to well we'll start to get into some of the pieces there around financialization debt rising inequality generational shifts uh, but i think it would be helpful for everybody to just start super high level can you just share kind of a snapshot of the takeaway in terms of where we've been and kind of what's played out over the last, say, 10, 20 years? So, yeah, I think, and this is still the issue, I think, with, with what the classrooms teach as well, you know, there's, there's still a really, the majority of investors want to believe that you know, GDP and economic growth and company fundamentals are you know, the predominant driver of stocks. And again, in a, with, depending on your time horizon, I'm not here to really dispute that or, or challenge. But I think there's ample evidence that's, that's shown that because of what policymakers have done and something happened, I have yet to really put my finger on it. Maybe you, if we ruminate and have ideas, um, something happened between like the late 70s and early 80s. And maybe it was Volcker 
sort of marking the, the peak of, you know, inflation combativeness and then Reaganomics in the 80s sort of ushering in this, this massive hysteria in Wall Street. But that's the point at which you just see a lot of these like financial ratios move higher. Um, and I think you and I have talked about this, but, you know, there are two studies that I cite. I'm sorry if I'm going to read these just to make sure I have the numbers correct. But, but Merrill Lynch did a study not too long ago. Um, and again, they I have all the inputs, but where they estimated that corporate earnings accounted for 50% of equity market returns prior to the GFC and have accounted for only 21% of equity market returns since the GFC. So over the last 13 years, and in the same study, they conclude that the changes to the Fed balance sheet have explained 52% of market returns during that same period, whereas they were much lower kind of before. But either way, they're essentially asserting that more than half of your equity market returns to some level are coming from macro. And there's another group in New York, which, which I like, if you're familiar with empirical partners, and they really just focus on data crunching and their third party objective, no, no affiliated brokerage. Uh, and they had a similar study, which showed that between 1950 and 1980, nearly 100% of real returns stemmed from growth rates in the real economy. But going back to that 1980 sort of chasm, from 1980 onwards, the performance of the economy has explained less than a quarter of market returns based on their data. So, I, you know, we've seen more <laughs> issues like, yeah, it is, but it is incredible. And it's something where finance professors or econ- economists, of course, they get, you know, they huff and puff quite a bit if you sort of raise this issue. But the reality is there's, there's data to support this as well. And I, I think we feel it you know, viscerally, but, but I think there is data out there that substantiates this. Mm-hmm. So to maybe recap that and try to put it in a couple of different buckets. So if you go back to the you know period between the 70s and the 80s, you see this massive shift and the shift moved into much more financialization driven returns, which is obviously causes ballooning debt. And so we have this financialization and debt piece. We obviously then, and you cover this a lot in the paper, uh, which I love, which is what does that create? And obviously what that creates is the rising inequality that just now seems to have reach a fever pitch and is something that's being discussed really heavily. Talk about that because I think that there's plenty of people talking about that connection. I still think it's probably under discussed. And I think what's fascinating that you've covered in detail is what does that mean? And what is that going to suggest the future starts to look like with generational shifts and people that have felt you know, this inequality, this lack of opportunity starting to come to an age where they can vote and control much more of the U.S. elections. Yeah. So you're really getting into the the crux of it. And I'll try to cover quite a bit of ground here, um, but definitely stop me. Yeah, I think this is what we're seeing now that this reliance on leverage and this reliance on asset prices, which has really taken hold over the past 40 years, it's, it's really eroded the value of money. And again, I think this began in sort of 1980, but you've had different iterative stages, primarily depending on the central banker in charge. But in this recent book, uh, The Lords of Easy Money, there's a passage where they talk about how with the dot-com bust, the Fed sort of justified cutting rates aggressively as a means of enhancing availability of housing to kind of lower income stratum. And, And here we are 20... Two years later, and they've essentially achieved the exact opposite. And that's because, you know, incentivizing demand didn't really help the supply side of the equation. You know, again, I don't want to read too many numbers, but even, you know, when I say different iterations, I think COVID sort of marked almost like a euphoric blow off. And, you know, again, this is a statistic that is mind blowing to me, but from the onset of COVID through, you know, two months ago, 
we saw $30 trillion in global monetary and fiscal stimulus that was created, which led to $60 trillion of gains in financial assets. And as we both know, the majority of that you know, matriculated to the wealthy and you know, just sort of extended a problem that was, that was there. I think you and I had this discussion, which I'm not sure if it's a good parallel, but it's like you know, when university Greek systems kind of got themselves in trouble with each you know, you know, each successive decade. And, you know, it started as a, I don't know, innocent toga party turns into something worse. And then, you know, the new president doesn't, you know, nobody, they won't be voted in if, if he takes that away. So they have it and it becomes even worse. And you just, each person's kind of painted themselves into a different corner. Yeah. And it becomes no, more normalized over time because people just accept that that's acceptable behavior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, and so that's, I almost, you feel, you know, sympathetic for Powell because, you know, financial assets today are are over three hundred percent of our global GDP, and it was that ratio was ninety percent thirty years ago, and then, and also during that same period, you know, debt has U.S. debt has grown thirty x, um, and now surpasses thirty trillion. And I think really importantly, U.S. household wealth per GDP is is now five hundred ninety percent, which is you know, essentially double where it was thirty years ago, but. As we both know, that's that has really been unequally distributed, and now you have the savings glut, which there's a lot of economic studies um, you know demonstrating that uh, you know that has sort of this distorted impact on on the economy. So yeah, I think you, you look at these numbers and you look at the fact that you know whereas between that 1950 to 1980 period, we required about one 1.75 units of debt for each unit of GDP. You know, that number today is is five x. Um, and equities now, yeah. Well, I'm not sure as of today, but as of like three months ago, for the first time in 40 years, you know, equities had become American households' largest basically source of wealth. And so, yeah, you can see this economy that's very it's it's asset owner heavy, it's capital owner heavy, and it's sort of labor light. And yeah, I think there will be a reaction to that. And I think we've seen already, you know, groups like the Business Roundtable who have come out within the past three years and shifted their ethos to favoring stakeholders rather than shareholders. I think you know, things like ESG as well are favoring this. And, and now we're beginning to see the upshot of this on, on the wage side as well. I think the last thing, again, sorry to throw just so much data at you, but I think it helps paint a picture. You know, Family income in real terms is about 200% higher than it was in 1950 for the 95th percentile or the, the 5% wealthiest Americans, whereas it's flat for the bottom 20th percentile you know, during that same time. So you know, how we reconcile this is, is going to be difficult. I think going back to your demographics question, probably the, the most worrisome or one of the most worrisome aspects to me is that every generation born from 1950 and beyond, you've seen sort of their forward outlook or their forward real income wage potential be somewhere between slightly to you know to significantly lower than their parents generation and and up until the kind of 50s and 60s people that are being born in those generations it had been the opposite where in America you know each successive generation was sort of had a had a brighter outlook so i think we'll have to combat that and just a couple more just because i think they are really meaningful when you think about financial assets and what's happening even recently, you know, home values have appreciated by 120% between 1965 and today. You know, incomes have increased by 19% over that same time. And corporate buybacks in the last 15 years in the US have totaled $7.6 trillion. 
whereas wages have risen by 4.6 trillion. So, and, and my dad's an attorney, so maybe he'll be upset with me, but I don't think it's coincidental because I'm really, again, grappling with what changed in the 70s and 80s. And you know, the number of lawyers per 1,000 people was about one per 1,000 in 1970, two by 1980, and it's about four and a half today. So you've seen a nearly, you know, almost 450% increase in lawyers. And I think that goes along with, again, that this sort of privileged class has, has been able to sort of seize the day. And I know people love Warren Buffett, and I keep stepping in hot water probably on this interview. But you know, I think his, his whole mantra of like asset light investing and low overhead, and you know, I think those things contributed to, along with China's entry into the WTO and outsourcing to companies that really were um, you know, focusing on profit margins and earnings per share at the expense of workers or what would be considered asset heavy. And so, yeah, that will get us into this, uh, this demographic discussion for sure. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. I mean, the piece there of, you know, it sounds like obviously capitalism won over the period from the 80s through today. The top 5% definitely won. And then the stats around the, you know, the remaining 95% are just absolutely staggering to go that period of time and have flat and, and consecutively flat to negative outlooks, which obviously, you know, that cannot, um, I think just thinking rationally, it would seem that that cannot continue forever. <laughs> that certainly has a breaking point. I want to just talk about one thing. Uh, I want to go back to one thing we discussed there, and then we'll, we'll pop back over and, and talk about some of the demographics. But I want to talk about debt because I think I, I want to get your thoughts around, obviously, when you share some of those stats, I think you, you shared something like 1.75, you know, debt needed for, you know, to generate one unit of GDP to five units of debt needed to to generate one unit of GDP today. You know, I'm sure people look at that. Obviously, it's backward looking. When you just say those stats, it sounds like, oh my, wow, it's basically gone up 10x uh, or not, not quite 10x, I guess, what, 3, 3x, 3.5x, something like that over that period. But I'm sure there are people that also argue there's no reason this can stop. What's your take on, can this continue? How big can this become? Or are we really at a tipping point? How do you think about that? How do you feel about that? That's like the primary question to be asking. And I always have to sort of emphasize that, you know, the point of my conclusion isn't doomsday, the world is going to end. Um, I think financial repression is, is going to persist with us for a long time. I do think ultimately that inflation has been proven as the way out, you know, not, not the, maybe the inflation that we are experiencing now, but the inflation in terms of the, the debt burden that we have, and I think even in terms of how do we handle these sort of inequality issues, um, you know, unleashing more populism, more fiscalism, and somehow getting you know, that velocity of money back up is, is important. I don't think that we'll tolerate a return to you know, the sort of disinflationary period that we've seen in the past 25 or 30 years because... You know, politically, that's becoming less palatable. Um, you know, we started to talk about demographics, but I do think it's it's 2030 roughly where the Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z percentage of the population that will be voting um, surpasses the older generations, specifically the Boomers. Um, and I think by 2039 or 2040, you know, they'll account for almost two thirds of, of the voting population. So I think you'll see very different views come in. Um, I think even beyond just what debt has created, the CBO, I think earlier this year gave their, or maybe last year, gave their projections for the next decade, which they have to do. And, you know, I think their forecast was for $4.6 trillion in just interest debt payments that our country has over the ensuing decade through 2031. So it must have been 2021. 
However, you know, they, they kind of then had a scale and walked through and one of the, you know, what would happen at different interest rate levels and at a hundred basis points higher seven year average interest rate relative to what they were projecting, which is essentially where the market is today. Um, that number jumps to $7.8 trillion. I mean, it's $3.2 trillion greater, which by the way, $7.8 trillion is higher than our entire debt level in 2005. So when you see these numbers, and again, it's, this is just different iterations of people painting themselves into corners. And as we've discussed, I think you know, as a country, you know, shorter term horizons, instant gratification, and a lot of that is, is, is politics and the fact that people run on two or four year terms. So the easiest thing to do is produce handouts or freebies or just punish someone else. Um, I think inflating our way out is the only way because I admire what Powell and the Fed now seems to be doing. But you know, the idea that we can go on any sort of significant austerity initiative to me seems pretty unlikely. And again, I think as the demographics do shift towards the younger cohorts, and you see this, I know this will probably change over time. But if you look at their values as of at least today, you see each, with each younger generation, they value uh, capitalism and democracy less. They, they value um, you know, heavier state intervention and more community-oriented approaches more. Of course, we're getting further and further away from people who have actually seen the illnesses of, of communism. So yeah, I do think over time, those younger generations, as they tend to do, may, you know, they may migrate a bit more conservatively from the views that they, have, they hold today. I mean, I think in the last presidential election, there was a survey of New York City private school seniors who you assume are privileged. And I think it was Bernie and Elizabeth Warren were like, received like 90% or 80% of the vote and, and, you know, candidates like Trump received zero. So I think that will shift a bit. But I think the last thing I would just add, which I think is really interesting read across for just how the political parties will behave is that uh, it's really the Hispanic speaking population that is going to grow. And it's also, you know, positive in a way. I mean, the U.S., the demographics growing in the U.S., assuming, you know, immigration is, is allowed to flourish is actually quite healthy relative to the rest of the world. But if you look at the trajectory between now and 2040, sorry, by 2040, Hispanics are expected to account for 80% of our overall population growth. And I want to make sure I have this right, but Gen Z will be the first cohort with a non-Hispanic white minority in the US. So we're still a relatively young country, but, but the composition is, is definitely shifting. And I do think the Hispanic vote is going to be, you know, a significant swing factor and how these things play out. And I've had, you know, views on both sides. You know, I think there's a prevailing view that the Democrats, you know, are still the party of the, of the kind of Hispanic population. And then, you know, I have a number of friends in Florida who are Cubans where they talk about how much they detest communism and they're very um, conservative in their views. So I think th- that's a, those are interesting uh, nuances to sort of how this plays out. But sorry, I was rambling a bit. No, no, no. That was, I mean, it's all, I think, fascinating. I want to talk about inflation for a second, because obviously that's a core piece of what we're discussing here is, you know, we've, you basically get yourself into a massive debt bubble by doing all this monetary policy and financialization over the last, what, 40 years. Then you have a debt bubble interest, you know, inflation 
can on the one end dictate the interest rate, you know, and, and but in another hand, inflation can also basically help get rid of that debt, help get rid of that debt. And, you know, I want to talk about inflation because it's a key piece of what you're discussing. And my take on it is, you know, even the word I think sounds relatively positive. What's really happening when, it, you know, when uh, inflation is doing its work is, you know, money's getting debased, but debased sounds much worse <laughs> than inflation, which sounds relatively positive. Like, oh, our portfolios are inflating. Maybe my bank account's inflating. Um, that's not really what's happening. And so I want to, one, I guess, just get your thoughts on how inflation impacts the 5% and the 95%, because I think that's also a really important piece where, you know, just, I guess what I would add to that really quickly to kind of tee it off is, you know, what I commonly hear discussed is inflation's bad for everybody, but the wealthy will do relatively fine because they hold equities, they hold things that will, you know, relatively hold their value against inflation. That's not true for the majority of the population that doesn't have a lot of assets and relies on income that's not moving, that inflation's now biting into. So talk about how that plays into this picture of where we're going and some of the issues around inequality. You've kind of summarized it quite well. I, I, think, I think for us, it's really interesting to watch this through you know, a quasi-EM prism because in, in EM, where the depth of capital and again, these levers that can be pulled behind the curtain are far more restrictive. We have already seen this sort of play out in, in different levels. But I think, yeah, clearly, the way this inflation is playing out, and I think, you know, subsequently, why the Fed is, is so aggressively trying to jawbone rates higher at this point is because they absolutely have to quell animal spirits, because animal spirits and inflation expectations are just as important for them. You know, in the past, we've always talked about the signaling as the Fed would try to achieve their goals without having to actually implement the policy. I think you know, someone, an economist I know had, had mentioned that the Fed had spent the last 10 years always conjuring up excuses for uh, retaining easier policy than they should have. And in the past six months, it's completely reversed where they're now coming up with sort of excuses. Even when the market is signaling, hey, policy error potentially ahead, the Powell has to back off because to your point, they're trying to address this sort of unequal impact, which will be really difficult. I mean, Miami is probably not a fair you know, example, but it's arguably they've been like the largest sort of beneficiary of whatever, paper, you know, wealth accumulation, crypto wealth, you know, grift, whatever you want to call it. And even in January, in the most recent housing prices, they were up 28% year over year and rents are up 56% in two years. And that's going to be an issue now because you know, well, the Fed's hiking rates, again, they haven't addressed the housing supply issue. So we've discussed this. You know, first-time buyers, you know, their monthly payment has just doubled in a couple of months, which is precluding them from entering the market as maybe they had anticipated just three or four months ago, which means they're required to continue to rent or, I guess, worst case, live with, with your parents. But the rental rates are soaring as well because it's the same issue. And I mean, I can't validate this, but I've seen it in a couple of different journals you know, I've read the financial institutions or entities are now controlling about 25% of our, of our housing or real estate stock in this country. So again, this is like 40 years buildup where, yeah, it does, it does impact them. And I think obviously, you know, fuel prices and food prices and all these other associated things impact them unless we see real wages you know, increase to a point or unless we see, I think, I think Musk or whoever, whoever it was had, has predicted this in the past as well, but 
you know, universal basic income, which comes in. I love capitalism. It's great. I do think, unfortunately, it's been a bit hijacked. And I kind of go back to the lobbyist or the lawyer, you know, figures earlier, which has sort of created different loopholes. And that's, and that's, that's problematic. But you always have to kind of see how, how it plays out. But I think addressing that will require, yeah, there's going to be more populist tilt to however this is going to, to be addressed. And, and sorry, what I meant to say too was unfortunately the, the private sector, not unfortunately, but the private sector is, is just always much, much more nimble and arguably much smarter than the public sector. Um, and and you know, I think uh, you could speak to tech much more than I could, but I think even looking at you know, in the past 40 years, areas where the, the, the government sort of intervened in theory to try and help the, the lower incomes, primarily education and healthcare, you know, with subsidies and these plans and what's happened is that those are probably the two most explosive. I mean, those areas have experienced inflation for decades. And I think now just what was happening there is, is, is kind of matriculating across uh, different sectors. So I don't know if I have a great answer, but I, I, I agree with you. And I think, I guess the answer is that as, as, the, as the voting demographic transitions, I think the votes are more, you know, we're seeing this already a bit with AOCs and Elizabeth Warrens and, and um, those people are becoming, I think, increasingly mainstream. And so I would anticipate in the next 10 to 20 years that there's going to be a large part of the population that unless things get recalibrated or are going to vote for you know, a more socialist-leaning candidate. That would just be my... And that's how our democracy typically works, like, right? If, if, if all these data... you know, I think the statistics are almost irrefutable, but if 70, 80, 90% of your voting population essentially is losing in, on a relative basis, um, they should theoretically vote for change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what immediately comes to mind when you talk about that shift is something like canceling student debt, which, you know, from my perspective, feels to almost have reached a fever pitch. And yet from the data that you're saying is like, no, maybe not. Maybe it's actually where it's going to continue to become a bigger and more vocal issue for the next 10 years. And it's going to be something that we're going to address in 2030, you know, once this demographic shift starts to happen. Anyway, so it's just fascinating to kind of like zoom this, what we've been discussing down into a single topic like that and and use it as a lens to, to look at how that might play out. I want to talk next about conclusions and specifically conclusions for investors at large. And and this isn't advice. I I think what this is, is one of the things I thought was fascinating is, you know, clearly when you talk about financialization, you know, you talk about this euphoric release valve that happened in 2020, 2021, specifically 2021, at least from my my, you know, personal perspective. And, you know, as we've also talked about, then we've seen a almost a whiplash of a regime of a regime shift over the last six months, which I think has taken a lot of people by surprise. And so, you know, you and I have had the discussion of that that is a uniquely difficult part of investing specifically in public markets is you have, you know, your kind of strategy, you have your tactics, and then you also have this regime that, you know, it plays a role. And when that changes as dramatically as it has, and what we're talking about there is a shift from, you know, uh, long duration, uh, you know, kind of uh, unprofitable, but high upside, you know, stocks and equities and companies into now people are basically discounting all of those and saying, now let's go for more of the the sure thing that has a bunch of implications. So I just want to ask the question, you know, what are your conclusions about where people should be investing or where people should be looking going forward? And basically what is no longer working? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I mean, you and I have had extensive conversations, the yeah, just the catchphrase is like labor versus capital. But, you know, and I'll borrow this from a 
a firm in London that employs this capital cycle investing where they more they more so focus on supply than demand. Yeah, I think I think buying I think you want to buy real assets. I do think, you know, it's not a knock on tech for example, but you know, during the finan- this financialization period where you know interest rates have dropped consistently and stimulus has grown, I think obviously technology is going to be, you know, a critical part of the future. It's been sort of a golden age if you wanted to emulate these models of attracting traffic and top line growth with with minimal worries about earnings or how to fund that growth through you know your own internal cash flows and i think you know so if we're in a regime shift we're in you know, we've reached sort of the end of the secular bond bull market which by the way doesn't mean that we may not go sideways for years i'm not convinced that rates are going to be at 10 because for the earlier data i think that breaks the system so you'll see repression you'll see things like yield curve control but i think the government recognizes that they they can't allow like markets to really operate freely you know, again, I want to veer away from saying it's doomsday. I think, yeah, I think they will. More inflation probably makes sense. That's that's the surest way to to debt monetization. And I, but I think going back, you know, going back to why we would assert that macro is really important. Um, and this again sort of links with how EM has worked more frequently than the U.S. in the past. I think understanding these policy dynamics and policy shifts will be important, whether it's you know, infrastructure programs or how the U.S. goes about reshoring everything from drug APIs, where we, where we're during COVID, we realized that you know, 80 to 90% of our supply of APIs was coming from China, and that seemed pretty irresponsible. And, you know, I'm from the Midwest, and I think, you know, there's a strong case, as we've discussed, um, you know, that, that the Midwest ends up potentially being a big beneficiary in terms of politically, I think, to win swing votes, where somebody would want to reshore the votes and then not to mention the, the, the climate change dynamics we've talked about. You know, I think relatedly to macro thematic investing, which I know you are very involved within, I, I feel like people's, you know, these, these style boxes or, you know, risk assessments of investing. Yeah. I think that's become a bit archaic. Yeah. I, I don't really understand why people are so obsessed with growth versus value. I think, you know, thematically, you can capture both of those, and you're seeing that right now. Uh, but again, thinking about things holistically, you know, where COVID sort of turbocharged the digitization of everything and front-loaded a lot of demand. And meanwhile, you know, I saw the stat this morning from one of my analysts, jobs in the oil industry are down by a third since 2019 alone, uh, whereas actually overall job creation is, is net positive in the U.S., so that and behavioral biases like ESG, yeah, there's, there's no incentive, but I think that leads you sort of to real assets. And one in particular that we've, we've talked about is uh, you know, water. And again, there's tons of amazing statistics on water, but I, I feel a bit like it's the boiling frog and that you know, people see Lake Powell and they see you know, what's happening in, in the Colorado River and it feeds so many of these states. And again, I want to make sure I have these statistics right, but you know, fresh water usage is up by 600% globally in the last 100 years. And if you look forward, 70% of you know, these hydrogen electrolyzers and water is really important for green energy, 70% of those projects will be located in water-stressed areas. Agricultural water withdrawals are going, going to increase 45% between 2010 and 2030, and we're halfway through. And every week from our friend Drew, uh, I receive a a heat map and a drought heat map of, of Texas and New Mexico and, 
in Colorado now we have um, fire warnings today, once again, like pretty much it's a weekly occurrence. So I think looking for places that have water, you know, there's the demand for water only continues to increase. And yet globally, and again, we've seen this in a, in a lot of the EM countries where literally people are deprived of water and there isn't the infrastructure. So I think, yeah, looking at those assets, I think new energy and green tech will you know, continue to coexist as a, because it's, it's an issue that we absolutely have to, to resolve. And then I guess this lastly, I, I would mention that volatility, you know, I think we've, we've become used to volatility. You know, volatility has been suppressed in tandem with interest rates and sort of this great financialization of the last 40 years. I think that's contributed. I think investors are going to have wake up calls with this notion that passive investing is, is you know, that they're just going to focus on saving 10 basis points in fees because passive investments, of course, will outperform in an area where the central bankers ensure that asset prices do nothing but go up, especially on a risk-adjusted basis. But you know, there's, that's, that's worrisome to me. I mean, Vanguard, as of two, I think Vanguard owns over 5% float in 100% of the S&P 500 stocks. And so I think we've created you know, systemic risks there as well, which, which, and you've also done that at the same time you know, we've minimized the depth of liquidity because of policies that came out of 0809, where there's far fewer prop desks and banks that can provide liquidity when, when you know, periods are strained. So I think, you know, that, and then lastly, um, you know, I'd say the demographics we've talked about a bit. So I think having a view on how that demographic shift, which to me appears pretty significant and dynamic in the next five to 15 years, you know, how that's going to play out is, I think, really important if you want to have an investment strategy. Globalization, I think, is, is going in reverse. So whether it's infrastructure or other ways to play reshoring, I think we're clearly moving into an era of regionalism as opposed to globalism. And it's not, I don't think, I don't think globalization is completely finished, but you know, our view is there's going to be more of a you know, China-centric sphere and, and a U.S. North American continent-oriented sphere as well. And for better or probably for worse, tying in with those themes, I think defense spending is structurally going to move higher. And you know, I think that's both traditional defense. And you and I had this conversation last year, which I wish we could have acted on, where I was trying to figure out ways to isolate just the actual defense companies and remove the commercial airline companies from the ETFs. But also, I think areas like cybersecurity will, you know, will continue to be important as well. So I, I think it's you know, again, I just, I, the thing I want to make sure I'm emphasizing is it's, it's not like the end of the world, but I think the crux, if I just summarize everything, it's I think 40 years of policy distortions and manipulation have created an investment environment that psychologically and behaviorally, it, it is really hard to understand how much we take these like inputs and variables for granted. And I think what it comes down to is whether you own certain growth equities, technology companies, uh, venture capital, PE, real estate, people are extraordinarily exposed to long duration assets. And the correlations, I'm sure they're seeing in the last six months, as happens in all markets, when things break, the correlations sort of one. So I would encourage people to diversify or, or hedge themselves some way, um, if you agree with sort of the conclusions here. And then two, I just think, you know, finally, if you think about that globalization, just how you want to you know, interact, you know, invest locally, invest globally. And, and I think when you think about, I don't mean that just countries, but I think in terms of the, the politics as well, if, if you are a real estate investor, and if you agree with, I guess, my 
my views of the political transition, I think increasingly there needs to be an awareness of the political orientation of parties in certain states or municipalities. And I, and you could speak this better than I could, but you know, in California, I think you're, you're seeing this where I'm talking to commercial real estate and other real estate investors who are moving out of the state, either because essentially they're sort of being p- penalized partly because there is this sort of populist shift. Whereas obviously Florida has been boom times because they've ostensibly taken uh, the opposite tack. So I think there's going to be more of sort of that. Uh, and what we've witnessed in emerging markets where it's this, you really have to understand like the granular politics. I think you're going to see that's kind of in the theater coming to you. And I think the last thing I would just mention is, and I'm not in the camp of, hey, the dollars days are done, but you mentioned this earlier. And I think if you look at the policies needed to resolve a lot of these issues, and in my view, our, our politicians always take the easiest way out. I think if push comes to shove, sacrificing the US dollar, debasing the dollar, that's a trade-off that the majority of people would happily take. And I think if you think about the voting population as well, whereas you mentioned earlier, I, I really don't think the 8% of the country has a significant international you know, investment presence. So you know, while we're seeing maybe the impact on exports and you know, the supply chain issues, yeah, I think if the U.S. can do things like make ourselves self-sufficient in energy relative to the rest of the world or somehow harness what for now is, is, a, is a large advantage in fresh water, yeah, I think the currency is an easy release valve that we can use to I would generate sort of a quasi-EM solution to, to the problem. But um, yeah, so I'll, I'll stop there. I think those were, hopefully that's what you were looking for. No, that's, I mean, it's been a, a fascinating, amazing. I think we've you know been covering this now for maybe 30 minutes, something like that. Um, and, you know, for everyone listening, I know we've thrown an enormous amount of stats and, and figures and, you know, different points of view, different themes and trends at you. But, you know, I think, and, and Howie, thank you so much again for coming on and sharing this because, you know, just to go back to, for me, the way I would summarize all this is I think it's all in the name of the paper that you put together, which is just pendulum shift. And it's this idea that, you know, it, it's almost like literally right now in time, we, you know, we're making our way through a door and the last 40 years are basically what came before. And, you know, the next 15, 20 years. And I think, you know, as you laid out, I think five to 15 seems somewhat dramatic in terms of the changes that are going to to happen at the demographic level, at the financialization level, at the debt level is just staggering. And so I think it's hopefully this has been for everyone listening, what it's been for me, which is just an enormous wealth of things to think about, (laughs) to consider as I'm one interpreting the news and and I think you know trying to watch how things continue to play out and two how I'm thinking about where you know I should be investing how I'm thinking about that stuff so thank you so much for sharing that Howie I, I want to end with just talking a little bit about advice for investors and and this is you know so You've you've worked at Driehaus for the last you know twenty plus years. You manage more than five billion you know in, a ca- in capital today. You've done that in enormously what I would you know describe as enormously challenging markets. It's almost like if we were playing a video game. If you choose to invest in EM, it's like you crank up the difficulty score <laughs> rather than playing the easy game. You play the difficult game. So I think you you know you have a, a wealth of wisdom to share. What is some of your, what, what do you credit with your success and what is some of your advice just very generally for other investors? I mean, I think being open-minded and, and malleable is, is, is truly important. Um, again, I think particularly in investing, 
people want to have these models or these philosophies that are concrete and tried and true. And the reality, if you really gauge the history of our industry, you know, whether it's LTCM or others, is you know, there's a periodic occurrence of companies that are on top of the world and they're geniuses. And then five or 10 years later, they're completely obsolete. And I think given, in my view, is what we've talked about in the latter half of this interview, if you believe the world is changing, it's really important. You know, I, I went to a liberal arts university, so I, I just believe liberal arts and the ability to um, you know, construct arguments and think about things critically and reach conclusions, but also, you know, as Drunken Miller kind of always talked about as well, the ability to, to adapt and change is important. Um, so it's, what is, what's the quote, like, strong convictions held loosely, something along those lines. I think being competitive, um, at least if you want to be you know, in, in the professional investment game, you know, again, in terms of quotes that, that I find interesting, you know, Richard Rehas, one of, one of my favorite quotes of his was, uh, he would just say, hey, if you don't want to win, don't worry, you won't. And I think it's, there's a lot of like, truth to that where it's, it's you've got to kind of get the elbow grease and you have to be you know, both competitive and I think psychologically a little bit off to be a great investor because essentially you're going up against extremely smart people with well, you know, firmly held and generally pretty well substantiated opinions and the ability to sort of have conviction in the face of that is really challenging. So yeah, I think those are probably the the big ones. I think the last thing, and kind of going back, you know, to another drunken miller, but he he talks a lot about how the best uh, investment managers he's he's ever met are hyper fixated on their failures and sort of come with a healthy dose of humility. And I, you know, there's so many arrogant people in this industry. And so, yeah, I think I mean, I think if you are competitive and if your if your true interest really is, is being the invest in, best investor rather than you know the, the paycheck or you know, the number of houses you can acquire or something along those lines. I think that, I mean, that's, I'd like to think of how I am. Like the successes are great, but you know, the, the pain, it's like the emotions of like loss versus winning. I mean, the, the, the emotions that, you know, intensity I, I, I get from losing or, or failure is significantly more than, than my successes. And I think you sort of need to have that mindset in order to, to persist in this industry for, for a long time. So I think those are probably... Let's say those are probably the key things I would I would mention. I think lastly, you know, something I realized belatedly, and, and you've been helpful in this too, is is casting as wide of a net as possible and really um, building out your network. I mean, some some advice I even give, particularly to to young kind of you know, college graduates, is that I'm just like blown away by by how much great content there is available for free now through you know, newsletters and podcasts such as this and conferences that are available on YouTube. There's like a, an abundance of, of knowledge that wasn't available 20 years ago. So I think um, capitalizing on that and exploiting that is, is beneficial as well. No, I couldn't agree more, especially with your last point, which leads to another maybe piece of advice, which is get good at setting aside time to actually do deep research. Because I think that that's something that I find difficult. And, you know, if it's true that there's amazing information that's that's free, that, you know, even just if you just locked yourself in a room, you only had access to YouTube, the amount of amazing talks, whether it's Google Talks or investment talks or Berkshire Hathaway meetings or whatever it is that's on YouTube is just absolutely, absolutely staggering. It made me think of a, another quote someone had, which I agree with. Um, 
another lesson I wish I had learned earlier on, which, which was leave time. I think the way he put it was leave time for creative tinkering. Uh, I think too oftentimes, even, even now, you know, I find myself sort of absorbed in the headlines and all the day-to-day volatility. And, and as I know you've excelled at, I think stepping away and allowing yourselves, yourself that ability to sort of have that creative autonomy is, is really critical. And along the same lines, I would say, just as a lesson in terms of, there is all this available content, which is tremendous, but also something I'm still working on, but really failed at in my first 10 years of investing was not reading a balanced, sort of eating a balanced diet of who you're reading and listening to. And, and I know you and I have talked about this, but it's particularly coming out of school, I mean, the most bearish world is going to end doomsdayers. They were always the most fascinating and they always had the most compelling arguments. And 20 years later, they're the most wrong. So read them, but then try and find someone equally positive so that you can interpret for yourself what the, you know, kind of logical path forward is based on your own interpretation. Yeah. So well said. I was just going to give a specific example that you and I have been chatting about recently on the tinkering side, which is one tool we've been, you know, playing with uh, for, for partially for fun, partially just because it's it's new and it's really unique is um, Composer, which you can find at Composer.trade. And it's it's fun for anyone that's interested in investing. I highly encourage you to check it out just because it's a very different uh, modality or user interface to use. But you can effectively construct, you know, portfolios. You can do it. It almost feels more like code, although it all happens in a graphical user interface. And yeah, I would just say for me, allowing myself the freedom to find something cool and actually allow myself to play with it. I don't have to cross a bar that I'm committing to this. I'm allowing myself to just freely play with it and see what I learned for it, I think has been um, enormously valuable. So yeah, huge plus one for tinkering. (laughs) Yeah, agreed, agreed. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Howie. This has been so much fun. And for anyone listening that wants to learn more about Driehaus, you can find them online at driehaus.com. That's D-R-I-E-H-A-U-S.com. And you can also follow them on Twitter at Driehaus Capital. Thank you so much, Howie. It's been amazing. Yeah, Daniel, thanks. This was fun. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 104. That's 104. At outlieracademy.com, you can also find more incredible interviews with investors like Joey Krug of Pantera Capital, James Courier of NFX, Simon Mikhailovich at Bullion Reserve, and Dan Roller of Moran Capital Management. You can now also find all of our interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length interviews as well as our favorite short clips from every episode, including this one. So make sure to subscribe to get notified whenever we share new videos each week. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Outlier Academy. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.